I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This week in our sermon series, we come to Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us once again call upon our great God and ask for his mercy and help that we might be able to see the glory of his son, to believe it, to receive it, and to walk in light of it. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we know that as we gather together now to hear you speak through your holy word, that we have an enemy who is also at work seeking to blind our hearts, to blind our minds, to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so to combat this great enemy, I ask that you would give me grace not to proclaim myself, but to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And I pray that you would give each of us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that as you said, let light shine out of darkness and there was light, that you would speak to our hearts to shine in our hearts and give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May it be in accordance with your word, we pray, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative word of our God. On February 6th, in a nine-hour span, two massive earthquakes shook Turkey and Syria. 
hundreds of thousands of buildings collapsed. Millions of people were left homeless. 130,000 were injured and over 55,000 lost their lives on that day. This tragedy was especially poignant because the severity of the suffering could have been mitigated to some degree, and the earthquakes revealed the previous incompetence and corruption of Turkey's government and of the construction companies. For in 2018, the Turkish government passed an amnesty law that allowed construction companies to build hundreds of thousands of structures without following building codes, including safety measures for potential earthquakes. And the only reason for this law was so that the companies could save money and the government could make money. This was especially heinous when considering that Turkey is located in one of the most volatile regions of the world when it comes to earthquakes because it's located where three tectonic plates interact. So they did all of this knowing that the earthquakes would come and that earthquakes of this magnitude were not only possible, they were probable. And yet the poor construction and corruption were not really fully revealed until the earth shook. For sound versus unsound, stable versus unstable, shakable versus unshakable is not revealed on clear, calm days. This is only revealed when the world shakes. The Bible teaches you that your life is like a house. It's like a building. We learned earlier in Hebrews 3, and we are his house, that is God's house. Paul likewise says in Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Jesus himself declared in Matthew chapter 7, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. People are like houses whose lives are either sound or unsound. Stable or unstable, shakable or unshakable. But which kind of life, which kind of house you are building will not be fully clear until the world, until your life begins to shake. For the difference between the house built on the rock and the one built on the sand was only revealed when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. One stood, the other fell. Therefore, this morning I ask you, what kind of life what kind of house are you building each and every day? Is it shakable or is it unshakable? When the world shakes, will your life stand or will it fall? For the world will face a final shaking and the tremors have already begun. Yet once more, God 
promises. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And our text tells us there are only two possible outcomes. Either you will be removed or you will remain. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, I'll explain what this shaking means, as well as what it means to be removed or to remain, but what you first need to understand is that there are only two kinds of lives. There are only two kinds of houses. There are the shakeable and there are the unshakable. The shakeable life is what I'm going to call life under the law. And the unshakable life is what I'm going to call life under the gospel. So this morning, I will first describe life under the law and then life under the gospel. And then in light of this, as we've heard repeatedly in Hebrews, I will offer you a warning and I will offer you an invitation trying to impress upon you that the only way that you will not be shaken is if you receive by faith the kingdom that cannot be shaken. So first in verses 18 through 21, you see a description of life under the law, which is characterized by a dreadful distance from God. We are still in these verses within the author's fifth and climactic warning to the Hebrews against apostasy, in which the author is now weaving together the various themes he has highlighted throughout his letter to warn the Hebrew Christians against forsaking their place within God's covenant of grace, abandoning the race of faith, and rejecting God's revelation and blessing as it has come to them in the person of Jesus Christ. For the author throughout this letter has understood redemptive history in which God progressively revealed and accomplished his covenant of grace to unfold in two primary stages or administrations. There was the old covenant administration under Moses and the law. And then there is the new covenant administration under Jesus and the gospel. For we have learned in this letter that after man's fall into sin and death, God graciously bound himself personally and legally to his people in what we call a covenant, a contract, a binding agreement. You think of the covenant of marriage today. It is very personal, relational, but it is also very legal and binding. And in this covenant, God promised to save his people from their sin and bring them back into his eternal life and rest. This is what we call the covenant of grace, promised in Genesis 3.15, and then the rest of your Bible is just this covenant unfolding and being accomplished over time. But that's the point. God didn't reveal and accomplish this one covenant all at once. He did it over time, in subsequent stages in history, through his covenants with Noah and Abraham, Israel, David, and finally with Jesus in the new covenant, which was the fulfillment of everything that had come before. Indeed, everything that you read about before Jesus is just preparing you for and pointing you to Jesus. But the author condenses all of this to help us understand is what happened before Jesus, what happened after Jesus. So the old covenant, just think of everything before Christ. The new covenant, think of everything in Christ and after Christ. Now, the Hebrew Christians originally receiving this letter 
lived in the old in the new covenant age just like we live in the new covenant age they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ but it appears now that they were in danger of rejecting what they had received and returning to the old covenant life under the mosaic law this is why I call it life under the law because the law with all of its priests and temples and sacrifices and festivals and purifications and worship regulations was the driving force of the old covenant. So one of the main arguments of the author of Hebrews has been to impress upon us that Jesus and the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant under the Mosaic law. It's not that the old covenant was bad. It was good. Neither was the problem that the old covenant couldn't do what God had designed it for. It did exactly what God designed it for. It's just that the old covenant was never designed to save you from your sins and bring you to God. It was designed as a temporary provision, protection, preparation, and pointer until God, in the fullness of time, would send his son to save his people from their sins. So the only problem with the old covenant and law is if you try to use it for something other than what God designed it for. Just like there's, there's nothing wrong with a hammer when you use it to pound nails. But if you use your hammer to try and start your car, it's not going to work very well. It's not what it was made for. But once Jesus came, there was no more use for the old covenant. Now, I've preached in many other series. There's still good use for the law. But the purpose of the Old Covenant was complete in Christ. So the author has upheld to us Jesus as God's superior self-revelation. That's how we began the letter. God had spoken at many times in various ways before Jesus, but the fullness of his revelation came with his Son. God revealed himself throughout redemptive history before Jesus, but that was just a, a shadowy revelation that intentionally lacked the full clarity that could only come in the incarnate person of God's eternal Son. In Jesus, therefore, through his person, his teaching and his saving work, God's word, God's work, and God's character finally found its full and clearest expression. So we've learned that new covenant revelation is superior to old covenant revelation. We've also learned that Jesus is the superior mediator of God's covenant with man, superior even to Moses who had stood before God on Israel's behalf, who had prayed to God on Israel's behalf, who had led God's people out of Egypt. But the new covenant mediator is superior to even Moses. Jesus has also been lifted up as the superior high priest to even the, the first high priest Aaron, because Jesus is perfectly faithful. He's always accepted in God's presence. He has full access to God because his priestly work is finished, never needs to be improved upon, never needs to be repeated. So Jesus always lives unlike those other high priests, always praying for God's people. The new covenant high priest is way better than the old covenant high priests. And Jesus is also the superior sacrifice for sin. 
He is perfectly righteous in every way. His blood has the purity and power necessary to cleanse and perfect God's people for all time. It is a once-for-all sacrifice, never needs to be offered again because sin can never withstand its cleansing power. And so the new covenant sacrifice is far better than the old covenant sacrifices. The old covenant, therefore, with the Mosaic law, was never able to take away sin and bring sinners into God's eternal life and rest, because that's not what it was made for. The old covenant was designed to reveal the awesome and unapproachable holiness of God at the same time that it revealed the horrible filth of sin, which stains every single one of us. Yes, it also communicated the possibility of salvation through a substitutionary sacrifice, but it did so pointing away from itself as the source of that salvation to the greater covenant with the greater mediator, high priest, sacrifice, and blood. So God was speaking through his old covenant revelation, but that message was, do not come. You cannot come into my presence and enter my rest because I am holy and you are not. You are stained by sin and you cannot come until I send my Savior. That's life under the law. It is always marked by a dreadful distance from God because it tells you you are a lawbreaker. And if you try to come into God's presence as an unholy, sin-stained lawbreaker, you die. Sinners cannot come before a holy God and live. The author is making this argument once again by describing for you the inauguration of the Old Covenant administration and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because that assembly of God's people epitomized Old Covenant worship. And what marked that assembly? After Israel's come out of Egypt, they've come now to Mount Sinai, they gather before the mountain, God's holiness descends upon the mountain, and what is described to us? Dread, terror. Notice the descriptions of God's presence, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, a loud trumpet blast, a voice of words. It's just a very loud and frightening scene. And what's the people's response? The hearers beg that God will not speak to them anymore. Even Moses, the mediator of the covenant, says he trembles with fear. Why? Because the scene also portrays distance from God. The people are not allowed to come near the mountain. He says even if an animal touches this mountain with, with one little part of its hoof, you pick up stones, you kill that animal. Nobody gets to come before the holy God. For God is holy and we are not. So God's law reveals a holy God and an unholy people. That's what God's holiness always reveals when it is only clothed in his law. For the sight of his holiness is the sight of our just judgment and death. That is life under the law. It shows you God's holiness. It shows you your sin. It shows you your, your need for salvation, but it cannot save you. And so the message is clear. Sinners under the law can only know dreadful distance from God. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, but pastor, I am not tempted to return to Old Covenant Judaism. 
not building an altar in my backyard, not going out buying sheep so I can sacrifice them. That's just, I'm tempted to a lot of things. That's not one of them. But you have to understand that that message communicated to Israel under the old covenant law is true for everyone who is born in this world, whether they realize it or not. Everyone is born under and condemned by God's law. Paul is clear about this in Romans 2. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So just not hearing the law doesn't do you any good. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, all of us non-Jews who weren't at Sinai, all who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In other words, everyone has the law. They have a sense of God's law by nature, and everyone is guilty of, under it, and everyone will be judged by it. Which means, if you are trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, doesn't have to be in trusting in an old covenant sacrificial system, but if you are trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, for your salvation, trusting in your family, in your finances, in your humanity, in your sense of morality, in your religious behavior, in any man-made religion or philosophy, whatever it may be, you are living under the law. And dreadful distance from God is what characterizes your life. This is life under the law. The knowledge that you need to be better, but you can't be better. It's a miserable existence. Some of you feel this every day. Your conscience nags at you. You're still not good enough. You blew up at your kids again. You were angry. You were impatient. You were lustful. You were lazy. The law keeps telling you, you are a sinner. But the good news is that there's another kind of life. The assembly at Sinai is meant to depict old covenant life under the law. But then in verses 22 through 24, we read about another assembly at another mount. And this depicts new covenant life under the gospel. This assembly is at Mount Zion in heaven. Now, Zion was a, a literal mountain, just like Sinai. It's the mount that David captured from the Jebusites. This is where Jerusalem and the temple are built. However, knowing, as we were taught in Hebrews 8, that these earthly realities are just shadows and copies of the greater heavenly reality, Zion came to be how the Jews referred to heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem and city of God. So our author depicts new covenant life and worship by describing this heavenly assembly at the heavenly mount and Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And you should notice in just reading the descriptions, the, the differences between these assemblies. While the assembly on earth at Sinai was characterized by a dreadful distance from God, the assembly in heaven at Zion is characterized by joyful access to God. The author's argument and to the Hebrews and to us is you don't live under the old covenant anymore. God hasn't brought you to Mount Sinai. He has brought you to Mount Zion. And here we find angels gathered 
not to hand down the curse of the law as happened at Sinai, but to celebrate salvation from the law. Innumerable angels are gathered in festal gathering. Just means they are having a party. I cannot wait to see how angels party. I'm, I'm not very good at partying on earth, but I imagine, I, I think I could get on board with how angels do it. We also find here the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, which is referring to all those who lived and died by faith. The, the catalog of heroes we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, who died and finished the race by faith. And what we see here in the assembly is their faith was not disappointed. They have received their inheritance, which is clear in the term firstborn. They've been made perfect in righteous in righteousness. They really have been cleansed and perfected for all time. And so you notice it's not that God has stopped being the judge. It says they've come to God, the judge of all, and yet they come before the judge and they're rejoicing. They're not trembling in fear, for they have been made holy, and they now can live in the life and presence of the holy God. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because of who else is at this gathering. They have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, why is Abel mentioned here? That might seem a little bit random. Some think that this is a, a reference back to Genesis 4, when we're told that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground after his brother Cain kills him. Kids, you remember the story, Cain and Abel, first sons, of Adam and Eve. They both bring an offering to the Lord. God accepts Abel's. He rejects Cain's. Cain, as brothers do, gets mad at his younger brother. Then he does what brothers never should do. He kills his younger brother, and Abel's blood cries out from the ground, presumably for justice, and that a curse would fall upon Cain. If this is what the author, author is referring to, then the argument would be that Jesus' blood doesn't cry out like Abel's for justice and curse, but cries out like Jesus did on the cross, that sinners may be forgiven. Now, that's possible. I just don't think that's quite right. For the Greek literally says that Jesus' blood the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than Abel. It doesn't say Abel's blood. It says a better word than Abel. Blood can be implied. And it doesn't say that the sprinkled blood cries out. But it says it speaks a better word. And earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, we've heard about Abel still speaking even though he's dead. But how was he speaking? By his faith. And what was his faith communicating? His faith was communicating acceptance before God that there was a sacrifice and offering by which we could be received by God. And what is the emphasis in our text? Acceptance and access to God. So I believe Abel is mentioned because he is the first person in the Bible who is said to have offered a sacrifice and been received by God. And in this way, he points us to the ultimate sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ, the sacrifice by which all of us are accepted before God and gain access to his presence. I would also note that every time Jesus' blood is mentioned in Hebrews, it's just shorthand for his sacrifice. So even if Abel's blood is implied, to me, that would still speak to the sacrifice that he offered. 
So if Abel's faith still speaks to us that there is a sacrifice by which we can be accepted before God, then Jesus' blood speaks the even better version of that acceptance because it is the sacrifice by which we are accepted before God. And this is why the assembly in heaven is not trembling in fear, is not remaining at a distance from God, the judge of all, like Israel did at Sinai. Because they have entered into his holy presence through Jesus. By the power of his cleansing blood. You see, the unmediated presence of God, when you just try to come to God on your own, that means death. But the mediated presence of God, coming to God through Jesus Christ, is life. Do you see, the presence of Jesus makes all the difference. So life under the law is eternal death. It is dreadful distance from God. But life under the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal life and joyful access to God. Those are the two pictures the author is painting for us. And then in light of this, as he has done repeatedly, he warns us and he invites us. The warning, as you see in verse 25 is do not refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? Jesus by his sprinkled blood. And what is he speaking? Well, unlike the message at Sinai, which was do not come near or you die, the message of Jesus in his blood is come near and that's how you're going to live. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, all of you out there who are still trying to live by the law, he says, stop it and come to me and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If anyone thirsts, he calls. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you hear what Jesus is speaking to you right now by his blood? He is speaking of life and light, of freedom and forgiveness, of peace and joy and rest. But not if you refuse him. Remember, these verses are part of the author's argument. We saw in the verses previous to our text, not to willfully neglect God's grace and let the root of bitterness grow and walk in the, the way of Esau, rejecting your place in the covenant. And his argument is that if, if the Esau's and all those under the old covenant did not escape judgment when they rejected the old covenant, do you really think we're going to escape judgment if we reject the greater covenant? The old covenant was just a shadow. Salvation had not yet been accomplished. But in Jesus, we have God's clearest revelation and the declaration of salvation accomplished. But with the greater covenant, not only comes greater privileges, but it also comes with greater responsibility and consequences. Because the clearer you can see, the more culpable you are when you reject what you see. And the, the clearer you can hear, the more culpable you are when you refuse what you can hear. 
That's the argument of verse 25 and verses 26 and 27. Essentially, the author is saying what he said earlier in chapter 2, when he said, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Again, the message declared by angels is the old covenant with the Mosaic law. And there was no escape if you rejected it. How much more is this true if you reject the greater and new covenant with the full gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, the earth literally shook when God descended upon Sinai. But that shaking came to signify God's judgment for those who rejected his covenant. But we are told an even greater shaking is coming, which may involve a literal shaking of the entire heavens and earth, but is more so meant to depict, depict the spiritual judgment that is coming. For the author is referring to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, when Haggai speaks of a universal judgment that is going to fall upon the nations. God will shake heaven and earth, meaning nobody is going to escape this shaking. And if the old covenant is signified by Sinai on earth, then the shaking of heaven and earth is his way of saying, there is going to be a judgment in light of the new covenant that is coming. And it's not just going to fall upon the nations. It will fall upon all of those who claim to be part of the new covenant. Judgment begins in the church. And on that day, the sheep will be separated from the goats, the wheat from the tares. And it will be revealed who built their house upon the rock and who built their house upon the sand. And so just like Turkey had no excuse, they knew the land would shake. You have no excuse. God has told you the shaking is coming. The final shaking will come when Christ returns. But the tremors are being felt even now. We feel them with every natural disaster, with every war and rumor of war. We feel them with every personal sorrow and tragedy that we face. But one of the blessings of these tremors is that they remind us of what is still coming and they help us live and build each day in light of the final day of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise we would become very forgetful and we would stop thinking about the future. And as we experience these preparatory tremors, we're also being illuminated of whether we are sound or unsound, whether we are stable or unstable, whether we are shakable or unshakable. And so, again, I ask you, are you living and building under the law? Or are you living and building under the gospel? Are you going to stand in that final judgment or will you fall? Will you be removed or will you remain? And the answer depends entirely on your relationship to Jesus Christ. That is the only factor that matters. For when it says things that are shaking, referring to things that that are made and will be removed versus things that will not be shaken. This is not just a, a distinction between physical and spiritual. Because the new heavens and the new earth, they're physical. And this is distinguishing between people. And we're all created, made beings. So the distinction is your relationship to the unmade, uncreated, unchangeable God. Only those who have a right relationship with him will be unshakable. To stand then 
is to be right with God and reflect his character. So the psalmist describes the righteous as stable trees and the wicked like chaff that will just be blown away. And he says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So again, standing or not standing depends on your relationship with God. And if you refuse the one who is speaking, you will be shaken. You will not be able to stand in God's judgment. So what's your hope? How can you become unshakable? Only by receiving the one who is speaking. By receiving Jesus in faith and believing the message of his saving blood. For by faith in Jesus, you receive an unshakable kingdom. For Jesus is not only the proclaimer of the kingdom... He's the creator of the kingdom. He's the cornerstone of the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the key to the kingdom. For he created it through his saving work. His life, death, and resurrection are what keeps it upright. He is not just your savior. He is your Lord. And his authoritative commands are actually keeping you safe within the kingdom. And he is the key because you only enter into the realm of your salvation by faith in the one who accomplished that salvation. You may be thinking, why week after week in Hebrews, it seems like it's just the same message. Believe in Jesus. Because that's the only message that matters. I don't know how many more Sundays I have to stand in this pulpit to plead with you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know how many more Sundays you have to sit in that pew and be offered the free gospel of Jesus Christ. So every single Sunday that God gives me life and breath and grace to do this amazing work of which I am not worthy I am going to plead with you every Sunday, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the only one who can save you from your sin. Receive Jesus as he sweetly speaks to you of your salvation by his blood and invites you to enter into his eternal life and rest. And don't receive him just once. Receive him every morning as you wake up. For every single morning, Jesus offers himself in his unshakable kingdom to you. He does not promise going into each day that you will not face sin and suffering. He just promises that you can have him with you every day as you do. And his blood will continue to wash you clean of your sin every day. And his power will continue to sustain you through your suffering every single day. So sing every morning like that beautiful song. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. And then sing that same song. When you come to die. And when I come to die. And when I come to die. And when I come to die. Give me Jesus. For when you have Jesus. When you trust in him. And the power of his cleansing blood. When you stand upon the rock of his obedience to the law and not the shifting sands of your disobedience, when you cling to the mercy of his cross, and when you look to the hope of his resurrection and ascension as the promise of your resurrection and ascension, when you live under the gospel which reveals your life and not the law which reveals your death, when you faithfully dwell within the bounds of his unshakable kingdom, you don't have to fear whenever the world shakes. 
because you are now unshakable. You will stand before God, the judge of all, because Jesus is your judgment. When you come before God's judgment, it will not be, here's the law. It will be, here is Jesus. He is the righteousness of the law. He paid the penalty for the law. He is the answer to the curse of the law. When you live under the law, your life will be lived in trembling fear. But when you live under the gospel, your life will be grateful worship. So you see here in verse 28, which in this context is an entire life of worship and service unto the Lord. And a life of acceptable worship and service to God. You think, how do I offer acceptable worship. I don't want to offer unacceptable worship. There's only one kind of acceptable worship. That is worship where you come before the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ, in accordance with his word. That's all it is. For we must not think that God now doesn't care about worship and obedience it's the same holy God who descended upon Sinai. And if he cared under the old covenant, you better believe he still cares about how we worship under the new covenant. He is still a consuming fire, we are told. And as it says in Deuteronomy 4, 24, which is why we come with reverence and awe. We're still coming before the holy God. But when you receive Christ in the kingdom, this consuming fire will not destroy you. It will simply refine you, making you come through on the other side, pure and holy as God is holy. So receive and do not refuse the one who is speaking by his blood. And as you do, give thanks that what you have received is unshakable. And so you will never be shaken, though heaven and earth are shaken. You will rejoice in the judgment, for you will stand before the judge, washed in Christ's blood and clothed in his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I know that you have ordained to save people through the preaching of your word. But I also know that my preaching cannot save anybody here. That is only if you, by your Holy Spirit, take your word, plant it deep within us, give us new minds and hearts, and cause that seed to bear good fruit. So I pray that you would make the soil of our hearts good soil. That the evil one would not be able to snatch away the seed of your word. That the cares and pleasures of this world would not choke it out. Oh Lord, save us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.